The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking at Exodus 16, and we're looking at the giving of the gift of manna. And because it's been a while since we began this chapter, I'm going to just read it in its entirety. And then I'm going to make some comments in which we're comparing, based on a study done, Gleanings in Exodus by A.W. Pink, comparing uh, the physical manna that Israel received to the Word of God. There's a, a many points of comparison between the two and uh, well worth studying. So let's look at Exodus 16 and then um, see what we can get from it. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Stay, uh, Say to the entire Israelite assembly, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the cloud, the glory of the Lord, appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, 
it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan, and Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Now, in our previous study, we already saw four points of comparison between the manna and the word of God. God willing, next time we're going to see a comparison between manna and Jesus Christ. But now we're going to focus on the comparison spiritually between manna and the word of God. Now, already I've covered the fact that the gift of manna was a physical and historical occurrence that met real physical needs. I'm not seeking to spiritualize a story and say that this is some kind of a, a moral or a parable, but it actually really happened. But I believe that the historical events of the Old Testament become spiritual realities for us, very much especially in the events of the Exodus, don't they? And we've seen this again and again. So it's not wrong for us to take spiritual lessons from the physical provision uh, that God made for Israel. By the way, while we were assembled in our little group of six, hope that's okay, but it was just six of us over there. I know you said three or four, but we wanted to gather together and we thanked the Lord for the manna and it occurred to me that God gave the manna every day whether they behaved well or not. Isn't that remarkable? Whether they were having good days or bad days, whether they were uh, filled with grace and praising him or really repugnant to him, either way, he met their needs day after day. Isn't that our God? Isn't he gracious to give us what we need even when we're behaving badly? I praise God for that. So that was just a, a little extra thing that came out of our Thanksgiving time and our prayer time. We've already seen first that the manna was a supernatural gift. There was no explaining it. There was no reason for nutrients to be found on the desert floor every day. It was a supernatural gift. It could not be explained naturally. So also the word of God is of supernatural origin. It cannot be explained naturally. We've already covered this, but just briefly. Uh, there's a supernatural origin to the Bible. 
It's supernatural in its predictive prophecies, supernatural in the way that it cuts open your heart, the living and enduring Word of God. It makes promises about the future, and it teaches us about the past. It gives us the mind of God so that we can understand. It's of supernatural origin, as we discussed earlier. Secondly, the manna came right to where the people were. Aren't you glad that you don't have to travel over burning sands or climb the highest mountain to get the truth of God? But so also the scripture, the word of God, is right where you are. Now that hasn't come without cost. I can assure you that people have sacrificed greatly in church history to get you the Bible in the English language so that you can read it with great ease. But now it is that the Bible is right where you are. And with a minimum amount of effort, you can reach out and take for yourselves all the nutrients you need spiritually. Thirdly, the manna was small in size. Now, I think this is fascinating. As I held up the Bible at that time, you realize all of the truth that God wants you to know for your spiritual nourishment is found in that little book. And so it is also uh, the manna wafers, the little parts of manna were small. I also take from this the need to accumulate and to build a system of truth, precept by precept. You just learn little things about God and you build almost like with a, an erector set or a Lego system, kind of an entire city of truth. Brick at a time, block at a time. You know, you don't get it all at once, but it takes consistently reading and taking it in. And so it is. The manna was small in size. And the manna was white in color, white being a symbol of purity and of holiness, as in Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So there's a sense of purity in the holiness and the perfection of manna. That's review. Um, now let's look uh, at the fifth point that A.W. Pink makes, and that is that the manna is to be eaten. The manna was to be eaten. The manna did you no good remaining on the ground or in the basket that you gathered. It had to be chewed upon, had to be eaten. It had to be taken in to bring you nourishment. And so it is with the word of God. I think that uh, too many of us don't take the time to meditate on the word of God, which is akin to chewing it over so that the nutrients are available for your soul. I think that... Uh, a short time of meditation is worth three times as much quick reading. I really think so. It's much better for you to take one little passage and just work it over, murmur over. That's what meditation is, literally, in the Hebrew. It's a muttering over the Word of God. Take a minute, put your finger here in Exodus 16, look over at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, uh, a tremendous psalm, and it's a blessing to me. I'm going over it daily at this point, but in Psalm 1 it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see that word meditate? That's what I was saying. It means to, to mutter over or to kind of chew it over, to work on it carefully. On his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Enduring fruitfulness comes from a deep chewing over and meditating on the word of God. Now, as I did on Wednesday night, I want to begin to exhort you to think about memorizing extended passages of Scripture in the year 2004. I fear that I have not exhorted you enough to do this, so that you think I'm some strange anomaly for memorizing long passages of Scripture. But many have received blessing from doing this. Many. And I think we ought to have a kind of a organized push in the year 2004 to memorize Scripture. 
I think it would be wonderful. And I guarantee you that you will not regret an hour spent memorizing. You'll not regret it. Because Psalm 1 says you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which is blessed in everything you do. And so wherever you're at in your stage of life, whether you're a young person, young people can mem memorize so easily, can't they? I mean, just long stretches of scripture and they don't forget them. How jealous am I? I have to work at it. I mean, I forget. My memory is becoming more and more like Teflon. Nothing's sticking to it. Kind of have to go over it again and again before it really sticks. But, you know, the labor brings glory to God. So if you're a young person, just re revel in it and memorize lots and lots and lots. If you're an older person, work at it. But all I'm saying is that you will definitely receive benefit. And I say that if you're memorizing, you can't help but be chewing on the word. You're going to be digesting it. You're going to be thinking about it. The things that I preached this morning in Philippians 2 are the fruit of probably 16 years of meditation on Psalm 2. I mean, on Philippians 2. And so again and again, going over it. And I don't think they're exhausted. I don't think so. You may have been exhausted after this morning. But I, I, I think that the truths are still there. There's still more to be found. And that's just one little section of Scripture. And so the manna had to be chewed on. You had to take it in. You had to eat it. It didn't do you any good sitting on a shelf. None at all. And so it is that we must read the Scripture. And we must uh, study it. And we must meditate on it carefully. Now, the next point uh, is that the manna was gathered daily. Go back to Exodus 16, and you see in verse 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. Do you see that? And so it is also with the word of God. I think in a very real sense, you can't really live on yesterday's quiet time. You can't live on yesterday's time with the Lord. I think that every day you are meant to study the scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we are building a system of truth so that we do remember the things we've learned uh, days ago, weeks ago, months ago, and years ago. There is an accumulation of truth. Thank God for that. And so we do have memory and we do build things up. But still in a very real sense, the manna is there for us every day. And we must feed on it every day. As I've said countless times in Hebrews 3, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I, I've, I've just come to realize this theology of today is so vital. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to hear his voice. Today is the day to obey him and serve him. And when the sun goes down and you go, you go to sleep, if God gives you another day and you wake up, today is the day to serve him. And so every day we take in the word of God. We organize our thoughts and our mind and our life around it. And so we, we gather this manna every day. If today you hear his voice. That's so vital. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. And so, as the Holy Spirit says, quote Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice. He just, by reading Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Listen to what he says and don't harden your heart. And so the manna was meant to be gathered every day. And so we must also take in the scripture every day. The next point that A.W. Pink notices here is that the manna was, manna was gathered in the morning. It was gathered in the morning. Look at verse 13 and 14 uh, in Exodus 16. It says there, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And then verse 14, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And so the manna came every morning. 
And so I'm not going to be hard and fast on this, but I really believe in a morning quiet time. And I think if you really... If you see the, the, the theology of today, as I was saying, the NIV capitalizing the word today in Hebrews 3 and 4, if there's something significant about today, then it's, it, it behooves us to begin today well, doesn't it? To, to start the day with the, with the Lord, to start the day with the Word of God, to start it with prayer, just as Jesus did in Mark chapter 1, early in the morning, a great while before sunrise. Jesus went out and met with the Lord. And so he set for us, I think, a pattern. You've got to seize the day. And I think many of you can testify to what I've said. Those days in which you get up crisply and begin well with a good quiet time, a good time in the, in the word and prayer, those are your best days. The days in which you kind of ease into the day, get around to the quiet time, mid to late afternoon, so much is wasted. We're not attuned to God. And so I think, as again, not being hard and fast, some of you say, well, I'm not really a morning person. And I'm not going to legislate anything, but I'm just exhorting you to consider Jesus' example. Early in the morning, he would rise to have his time with God. And so I would exhort you to think about that. This manna was gathered in the morning. So they begin the day in the word of the Lord. I want to read a section from Desiring God that just struck me a number of years ago. And uh, I was just... Um, encouraged by this greatly. This is the testimony of George Mueller. And some of you have heard this before, and if so, maybe it will be an encouragement to you to hear it again. Uh, this is just a long quote from George Mueller. Um, in 1841, he made a life-changing discovery. It had been his habit up to that point um, to rise up for his quiet time, but he always began with prayer. Now listen to what he says. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Think manna right there. All right, how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in, the, in this world. And yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for ten years previously, as a habitual thing, to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. The first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it, not for the sake of public ministry of the word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. 
The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a few minutes, my soul has been led to confession of sin or to thanksgiving on some point or to intercession or supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication or have given thanks, I go on to the next words or verse, turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or intercession mingled with my meditation, and that my inner man is almost invariably, even sensibly nourished and strengthened, and that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. I think that's so revealing, isn't it? We're not always going to get into a happy state, but at least we're right with the Lord. I think this is wonderful advice and very practical, isn't it? If you think of your quiet time as a conversation between you and the Lord, doesn't it behoove you to listen first? I'm going to let God speak to you first and then speak back to him based on what he's already said to you. And then the conversation begins just as it does with Mueller. I think that's marvelous. And again, this is not meant to be legislated or anything, but just some helpful hint from a guy who is very busy and fruitful in serving the Lord. Nourish yourself first by taking in the Word of God and do it early in the morning. Now, another thing that uh, Pink notices here is that the manna was obtained by labor. All right, it wasn't that hard when you stop and think about it. It was a lot uh, easier than sowing and reaping and all that. But still, they had to go out and collect it, didn't they? They had to go, uh, go scoop it up. And so also the Word of God is obtained by labor. Listen to Proverbs uh, chapter 2. It says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Do you see that searching, that diligent labor? You're coming at the scripture with energy. You're coming at it to seek and to find the Lord and his wisdom and his truth. And so there's a labor involved, as there was also in collecting the manna, a labor. It says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that you should study to show yourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's a studying that goes in the word of God. There's a labor there. The ninth point that he makes is that the manna is obtained by stooping. It was low on the ground. And this uh, means that you had to get down probably on your knees. And I think this is good to remember as well. I think that the word of God can be nothing to you if you won't humble yourself and ask him to reveal it to you. As it says in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Have you ever had the experience where you read the word and you get nothing out of it? I mean nothing. It's just black marks on the page. You read and there's just nothing going on. And you think, people have written incredible sermons on this text and I'm getting nothing. 
How can it be? When that happens, that's a time that you must go to the Lord in prayer. Humble yourself and say, unless you take the scales off my eyes, unless you open the eyes of my heart, unless the eyes of my heart be enlightened to see the truth, I will get nothing out of this time. And so the manna is obtained by getting down on your knees, humbling yourself, knowing that as you come with a humble posture, you're going to receive benefit from it. Also, that we should humble ourselves before the word of God because it is the command of our king, is it not? He's telling us how to live. And so it says that we should take Christ's yoke upon us and we should learn from him. So we come with a humble attitude. Not, I'm going to judge what I'll do with the word, but rather, the word is going to judge me. The word is going to judge my life. So there's a, a humble posture that we take as we go to collect the manna. Tenth, it says, some gathered more and some gathered less. You know that the Apostle Paul brings this up, doesn't he, when he talks about material things. He says, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. And so there was, I think, through spiritual gifts, a collective pooling and sharing of material benefits. Some people are able to gather much materially, I mean financially, and they share it through the spiritual gift of giving, right? But he who gathered much did not end up with too much. And he who gathered little did not end up with too little. There was a sharing. How, how also is it with the word of God? There are some people that are just gifted as teachers and they see a lot more in a passage than we do. But that's not to discourage us. That's really to bless us because if they're given the gift of teaching, then they share it and you see it too. And so those that gather much from the word can share. Those that gather little don't have too little in the end. But there's a, I think a, um, this is really a body verse, isn't it? Uh, so that the community is drawn together, so that the, the able-bodied young men could go out and, and gather lots and lots for the elderly who really couldn't gather much. And so there was a sharing, a community. I think this points to spiritual gifts. It points to the fact that we are one body. And so God uh, shows some people more things in Scripture uh, than he shows others, but it's for the benefit of the whole body. And so that's not to discourage anybody, but just to realize that some have this ability to gather much, and I benefit from them greatly. Have you ever read Spurgeon? You just read through and you say, how do you get all this? Where did it all come from? It's just the lavish gifting of God. The eleventh point is what was gathered had to be used. There's no excess left over, no midnight snack, as it were. I mean, it was meant to be eaten, you know, just like in the army. Take what you want, but eat what you take, right? And so also it is with the word of God. We're not merely to listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. We're to do what it says. The word is meant to be put into practice in our lives. Jesus said, you know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. And so we must put the word of God into practice. What was gathered must be used. The twelfth is that the manna was incomprehensible to the natural man. Do you remember what manna means? What is it? <laughs> and that's what they said. In verse 15, they cry out, what is it? And they didn't know what it was. And so also the natural man, that's what they say about the Bible. What is it? What's the big deal about the Bible? The, the word of God is incomprehensible to the natural man. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the things of God are foolishness to the natural mind, to the natural man. They cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so the word of God, the things that we delight in, a promise of God or something that we find, it's greeted with a yawn by the unregenerate. They have no interest in it. 
They don't know why we would sit here and go over Exodus 16 carefully, finding 17 points of contact between manna and the written word of God. It's of no interest to the unregenerate mind, but to the Christian of great attraction and great value. And so the world says of the scripture, what is it? But we say it is life. The word of God is life to us, not just idle words. So the manna is incomprehensible to the natural man. Thirteenth, the manna was despised by the mixed multitude. Look at Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 through 6. Numbers 11, verse 4 through 6. We've alluded to this section before. The rabble with them began to crave other food. What does other food mean? Other than what? Other than the manna. Yes. They were sick of the manna. And again the Israelites started wailing. <laughs> if only we had meat to eat. Oh, we remember the fish we ate. I can't relate to that. But anyway, they liked it. So we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Mm. Onions, garlic, and fish. I mean, what more could you want? Yeah, exactly. But now we have lost our appetite, and we never see anything but this manna. Do you see how despicable the manna is to the natural man? The mixed multitude thinks very little of it, despises it. And so also the word of God is easily despised, even in a mixed church. We need something else, something other than the Word of God. When I first got here, somebody came and was talking to me about my preaching style and said, you know, Pastor, the person no longer here, but I'm, I'm just sharing a story, said, Pastor, what you're giving us some morning, it's really just like a Sunday school lesson. It's nothing but the Bible. And I said, well, what were you hoping for? Well, something else. I said, like what? like illustrations, stories, anecdotes, vignettes, jokes. Yes, things like that. And my feeling is the word of God sustains you, and the word of God is despised by the mixed multitude. We want some of the fish and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and all the stuff that we experienced back in Egypt, all that fun stuff. Well, fun doesn't build the soul, but the word of God definitely does. It builds up the soul. And so the manna was despised by the mixed multitude. Fourteenth, the manna was preserved in the ark. Isn't this interesting that they stored up manna in the ark and it did not go bad? That's fascinating to me because in the tents they stored it up and it had maggots all over it. But in the ark it was stored up and it didn't go bad. And to me this is a symbol of the enduring nature of the word of God. Sustained by God himself. Only God could have sustained it generation after generation and it not go bad. And so we still have the Bible, don't we? I mean, when did Moses write this account? Thousands of years ago. And we still have it and it's not gone bad and it never will. Heaven and earth will pass away, said Jesus, but my words will never pass away. Until heaven and earth disappear, Jesus said, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. God sustains the word and keeps it fresh generation after generation. And it never goes bad. Isn't that wonderful? And so we, the next generation, we're now reading it and we're sustained by it and we'll pass it on to the generation that follows and God will keep it fresh for them too. The word of God. A generation after generation preserved in the ark. God sustained it. Fifteenth, the manna 
uh, lasted or continued to be given until they crossed the border into the promised land. They kept eating the manna until the, finally they were in the promised land when they needed it no more. Now, what am I saying? I am saying you won't need the Bible in heaven. I stand by that. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, now we see through a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. You won't need to sit down and read the Bible in heaven. It will all be there. You'll be looking at the Word of God. I mean, you'll be looking and you will know fully, even as you are fully known. And how delightful is that? This is the homely means that God has given us while we're here on earth, line upon line, letter by letter, precept by precept, translated into many languages. This is what he's given us, and it is sufficient for this earthly journey. But when we reach the other side, when we enter the promised land, the manna will cease, it will have done its job, it will have gotten us to the promised land, and then we will feast on the harvest of truth in the presence of God. And so the manna will last for us until Cain is reached at last. Those are pinks. Now I'm going to add one of my own, number 16. And that is that the manna was sufficient for all of the needs of the people. They didn't need anything else. They needed manna and water, and I'm saying, but in terms of food, uh, manna did everything for them. It had all of the nutrients. I wonder if we had a sample and we sent it to a nutritional lab and found out what was in it, we might be amazed. Just like, what was it, total cereal, 100% of everything, you know, right on down. 100% of all of the things you need for 40 years, 100%, everything that you needed. And so also the Word of God is sufficient for everything that we need. Everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, has been given to us through our knowledge of him uh, who has given us these very great and precious promises. And so in the word of God, you have everything you need for spiritual life, for godliness. Everything you need. Now, I'm not telling you students you don't need to study your economics textbooks or, or history. You don't need to study. I'm not saying that. But for the nurture of the soul, you don't need anything else other than the word of God and for the health of a local church, for its full fruition, for its evangelistic mission, for uh, its growing nature. We don't need the latest marketing from some church growth group teaching us what to do. We need the Word of God. We need it taught faithfully. We need to live it out. We need to do what it says. And we will see this church flourish and grow. The Word of God is sufficient. So 16 points of contact between manna and the written Word of God. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.